0: Discourse 2 of Discourses on the Christian Revelation viewed in connection with the modern astronomy by Thomas Chalmers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Modesty of True Science And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 2 There is much profound and important wisdom in that proverb of Solomon where it is said that the heart knoweth its own bitterness... It forms part of a truth still more comprehensive, that every man knoweth his own peculiar feelings and difficulties and trials far better than he can get any of his neighbours to perceive them. It is natural to us all that we should desire to engross, to the uttermost, the sympathy of others with what is most painful to the sensibilities of our own bosom, and with what is most aggravating in the hardships of our own situation." but, labour as we may, we cannot, with every power of expression, make an adequate conveyance, as it were, of all our sensations and of all our circumstances into another's understanding. There is a something in the intimacy of a man's own experience which he cannot make to pass entire into the heart and mind, even of his most familiar companion, and thus it is that he is so often defeated in his attempts to obtain a full and a cordial possession of his sympathy, He is mortified, and he wonders at the obtuseness of the people around him, and that he cannot get them to enter into the justness of his complainings, nor to feel the point upon which turn the truth and the reason of his remonstrances, nor to give their interested attention to the case of his peculiarities or of his wrongs, nor to kindle in generous resentment along with him, when he starts the topic of his indignation. He does not reflect all the while that, with every human being he addresses, there is an inner man which forms a theatre of passions and of interests as busy, as crowded, and as fitted as his own, to engross the anxious and the exercised feelings of a heart, which can alone understand its own bitterness, and lay a correct estimate on the burden of its own visitations. Every man we meet carries about with him the unperceived solitude of his bosom, A little world of his own, and we are just as blind and as insensible and as dull, both of perception and of sympathy, about his engrossing objects, as he is about ours. And did we suffer this observation to have all its weight upon us, it might serve to make us more candid and more considerate of others. It might serve to abate the monopolizing selfishness of our nature. It might serve to soften down all the malignity which comes out of those envious contemplations that we are so apt to cast on the fancied ease and prosperity which are around us. It might serve to reconcile every man to his own lot, and dispose him to bear with thankfulness his own burden. And if this train of sentiment were prosecuted with firmness and calmness and impartiality, it would lead to the conclusion that each profession in life has its own peculiar pains and its own besetting inconveniences." that from the very bottom of society up to the golden pinnacle which blazons upon its summit there is much in the shape of care and of suffering to be found, that throughout all the conceivable varieties of human condition there are trials which can neither be adequately told on the one side nor fully understood on the other, that the ways of God to man are as equal in this as in every department of his administration, and that, go to whatever quarter of human experience we may, we shall find that he has provided enough to exercise the patience and to accomplish the purposes of a wise and a salutary discipline upon all his children. I have brought forward this observation, that it may prepare the way for a second. There are perhaps no two sets of human beings who comprehend less the movements and enter less into the cares and concerns of each other than the wide and busy public on the one hand, and on the other those men of close and studious retirement, whom the world never hears of, save when from their thoughtful solitude there issues forth some splendid discovery to set the world on a gaze of admiration." Then will the brilliancy of a superior genius draw every eye towards it, and the homage paid to intellectual superiority will place its idol on a loftier eminence than all wealth or than all titles can bestow, and the name of the successful philosopher will circulate in his own age over the whole extent of civilized society, and be borne down to posterity in the characters of ever-during remembrance And thus it is that when we look back on the days of Newton, we annex a kind of mysterious greatness to him who, by the pure force of his understanding, rose to such a gigantic elevation above the level of ordinary men, and the kings and warriors of other days sink into insignificance around him, and he, at this moment, stands forth to the public eye in a prouder array of glory than circles the memory of all the men of former generations." and all while the vulgar grandeur of other days is now mouldering in forgetfulness, the achievements of our great astronomer are still fresh in the veneration of his countrymen, and they carry him forward on the stream of time, with a reputation ever-gathering, and the triumphs of a distinction that will never die. Now the point that I want to impress upon you is, that the same public who are so dazzled and overborne by the luster of all this superiority— are utterly in the dark as to what that is which confers its chief merit on the philosophy of Newton. They see the result of his labours, but they know not how to appreciate the difficulty or the extent of them. They look on the stately edifice he has reared, but they know not what he had to do in settling the foundation which gives to it all its stability. Nor are they aware what painful encounters he had to make, both with the natural predilections of his own heart, And with the prejudices of others when employed on the work of laying together its unperishing materials. They have never heard of the controversies which this man of peaceful, unambitious modesty had to sustain with all that was proud and all that was intolerant in the philosophy of the age. They have never, in thought, entered that closet which was the scene of his patient and profound exercises, nor have they gone along with him as he gave his silent hours to the labors of the midnight oil and plied that unwearied task to which the charm of lofty contemplation had allured him. Nor have they accompanied him through all the workings of that wonderful mind, from which, as from the recesses of a laboratory, there came forth such gleams and processes of thought as shed an effulgency over the whole amplitude of nature. All this the public have not done, for of this the great majority, even of the reading and cultivated public, are utterly incapable, and therefore is it that they need to be told what that is, that, When laboring in other fields of investigation they may know how to borrow from his safe example and how to profit by that superior wisdom which marked the whole conduct of his understanding. Let it be understood, then, that they are the positive discoveries of Newton which, in the eye of a superficial public, confer upon him all his reputation. He discovered the mechanism of the planetary system. He discovered the composition of light. He discovered the cause of those alternate movements which take place on the waters of the ocean. These form his actual and his visible achievements. These are what the world look to as the monuments of his greatness. These are doctrines by which he has enriched the field of philosophy, and thus it is that the whole of his merit is supposed to lie in having had the sagacity to perceive and the vigor to lay hold of the proofs which conferred upon these doctrines all the establishment of a most rigid and conclusive demonstration. But, while he gets all his credit and all his admiration for those articles of science which he has added to the creed of philosophers, he deserves as much credit and admiration for those articles which he kept out of this creed as for those which he introduced into it. It was the property of his mind that it kept a tenacious hold of every one position which had proof to substantiate it, but it forms a property equally characteristic and which, in fact, gives its leading peculiarity to the whole spirit and style of his investigations, that he put a most determined exclusion on every one position that was destitute of such proof. He would not admit the astronomical theories of those who went before him because they had no proof. He would not give in to their notions about the planets wheeling their rounds in whirlpools of ether, for he did not see this ether. He had no proof of its existence, and besides, even supposing it to exist, it would not have impressed on the heavenly bodies such movements as met his observation." he would not submit his judgment to the reigning systems of the day, for, though they had authority to recommend them, they had no proof, and thus it is, that he evinced the strength and the soundness of his philosophy, as much by his decisions upon these doctrines of science which he rejected, as by his demonstration of those doctrines of science which he was the first to propose, and which now stand out to the eye of posterity as the only monuments to the force and superiority of his understanding.' He wanted no other recommendation for any one article of science than the recommendation of evidence, and with this recommendation he opened to it the chamber of his mind, though authority scowled upon it, and taste was disgusted by it, and fashion was ashamed of it, and all the beauteous speculation of former days was cruelly broken up by this new announcement of the better philosophy, and scattered like the fragments of an aerial vision, over which the past generations of the world had been slumbering their profound and their pleasing reverie. But on the other hand, should the article of science want the recommendation of evidence, he shut against it all the avenues of his understanding, and though all antiquity lent their suffrages to it, and all eloquence had thrown around it the most attractive brilliancy, and all habit had incorporated it with every system of every seminary in Europe, and all fancy had arrayed it in graces of the most tempting solicitation, Yet was the steady and inflexible mind of Newton proof against this whole weight of authority and allurement, and casting his cold and unwelcome look at the specious plausibility he rebuked it from his pretense. The strength of his philosophy lay as much in refusing admittance to that which wanted evidence as in giving a place and an occupancy to that which possessed it. In that march of intellect, which led him onwards, through the rich and magnificent field of his discoveries, he pondered every step, and while he advanced with a firm and assured movement, wherever the light of evidence carried him, he never suffered any glare of imagination or of prejudice to seduce him from his path. Certain it is that in the prosecution of his wonderful career he found himself in a way beset with temptation upon every side of him. It was not merely that he had the reigning taste and philosophy of the times to contend with, but he expatiated on a lofty region, where, in all the giddiness of success, he might have met with much to solicit his fancy, and tempt him to some devious speculation. Had he been like the majority of other men, he would have broken free from the fetters of a sober and chastised understanding, and, giving wing to his imagination, had done what philosophers have done after him, been carried away by some meteor of their own forming. Or found their amusement in some of their own intellectual pictures, or palmed some loose and confident plausibilities of their own upon the world. But Newton stood true to his principle that he would take up with nothing which wanted evidence, and he kept by his demonstrations and his measurements and his proofs. And if it be true that he who ruleth his own spirit is greater than he who taketh a city, There was one, in the solitude of his chamber, many a repeated victory over himself, which should give a brighter luster to his name than all the conquests he has made on the field of discovery, or than all the splendor of his positive achievements. I trust you understand that, though it be one of the maxims of the true philosophy never to shrink from a doctrine which has evidence on its side, it is another maxim equally essential to it never to harbor any doctrine when this evidence is wanting.' Take these two maxims along with you, and you will be at no loss to explain the peculiarity which, more than any other, goes both to characterize and to ennoble the philosophy of Newton. What I allude to is the precious combination of its strength and of its modesty. On the one hand, what greater evidence of strength than the fulfillment of that mighty enterprise by which the heavens have been made its own and the mechanism of unnumbered worlds has been brought within the grasp of the human understanding?' Now it was by walking in the light of sound and competent evidence that all this was accomplished. It was by the patient, the strenuous, the unfaltering application of the legitimate instruments of discovery. It was by touching that which was tangible, and looking to that which was visible, and computing that which was measurable, and, in one word, by making a right and a reasonable use of all that proof which the field of nature around us has brought within the limit of sensible observation." This is the arena on which the modern philosophy has won all her victories, and fulfilled all her wondrous achievements, and reared all her proud and enduring monuments, and gathered all her magnificent trophies, to that power of intellect with which the hand of bounteous heaven has so richly gifted the constitution of our species. But on the other hand, go beyond the limits of sensible observation, and from that moment the genuine disciples of this enlightened school cast all their confidence and all their intrepidity away from them. Keep them on the firm ground of experiment, and none more bold and more decisive in their announcements of all that they have evidence for. But off this ground, none more humble or more cautious of anything like positive announcements than they. They choose neither to know, nor to believe, nor to assert where evidence is wanting, and they will sit with all the patience of a scholar to his task, till they have found it. They are utter strangers to that haughty confidence with which some philosophers of the day sport the plausibilities of unauthorized speculation, and by which, unmindful of the limit that separates the region of sense from the region of conjecture, they make their blind and their impetuous inroads into a province which does not belong to them. There is no one object to which the exercised mind of a true Newtonian disciple is more familiarized than this limit, and it serves as a boundary by which he shapes and bounds and regulates all the enterprises of his philosophy. All the space which lies within this limit he cultivates to the uttermost, and it is by such successive labors that every year which rolls over the world is witnessing some new contribution to experimental science, and adding to the solidity and aggrandizement of this wonderful fabric. But, if true to their own principle, then in reference to the forbidden ground which lies without this limit, those very men who, on the field of warranted exertion, evinced all the hardihood and vigour of a full-grown understanding, show, on every subject where the light of evidence is withheld from them, all the modesty of children. They give us positive opinion only when they have indisputable proof, but when they have no such proof, they have no such opinion. The single principle of their respect to truth secures their homage for every one position where the evidence of truth is present, and at the same time begets an entire diffidence about every one position from which this evidence is disjoined. And thus we may understand how the first man in the accomplishments of philosophy, which the world ever saw, sat at the book of nature in the humble attitude of its interpreter and its pupil, how all the docility of conscious ignorance threw a sweet and softening luster around the radiance even of his most splendid discoveries, and while the flippancy of a few superficial acquirements is enough to place a philosopher of the day on the pedestal of his fancied elevation, and to vest him with an assumed lordship over the whole domain of natural and revealed knowledge, we cannot forbear to do honour to the unpretending greatness of Newton, than whom we know not, if there ever lighted on the face of our world, one in the character of whose admirable genius so much force and so much humility were more attractively blended." I now propose to carry you forward, by a few simple illustrations, to the argument of this day. All the sublime truths of the modern astronomy lie within the field of actual observation, and have the firm evidence to rest upon of all that information which is conveyed to us by the avenue of the senses. Sir Isaac Newton never went beyond this field without a reverential impression upon his mind of the precariousness of the ground on which he was standing." On this ground he never ventured a positive affirmation, but, resigning the lofty tone of demonstration, and putting on the modesty of conscious ignorance, he brought forward all he had to say, in the humble form of a doubt, or a conjecture, or a question. But what he had not confidence to do, other philosophers have done after him, and they have winged their audacious way into forbidden regions, and they have crossed that circle by which the field of observation is enclosed and there they have debated and dogmatized with all the pride of a most intolerant assurance. Now, though the case be imaginary, let us conceive, for the sake of illustration, that one of these philosophers made so extravagant a departure from the sobriety of experimental science as to pass on from the astronomy of the different planets, and to attempt the natural history of their animal and vegetable kingdoms. He might get hold of some vague and general analogies to throw an air of plausibility about his speculation. He might pass from the botany of the different regions of the globe that we inhabit, and make his loose and confident applications to each of the other planets according to its distance from the sun, and the inclination of its access to the plane of its annual revolution, and out of some such slender materials he may work up an amusing philosophical romance full of ingenuity and having, with all, the colour of truth and consistency spread over it. I can conceive how a superficial public might be delighted by the eloquence of such a composition and even be impressed by its arguments. But were I asked which is the man of all the ages and countries in the world who would have the least respect for this treatise upon the plants which grow on the surface of Jupiter, I should be at no loss to answer the question. I should say that it would be he who had computed the motions of Jupiter, that it would be he who had measured the bulk and density of Jupiter, that it would be he who had estimated the periods of Jupiter, that it would be he whose observant eye and patiently calculating mind had traced the satellites of Jupiter through all the rounds of their mazy circulation and unravelled the intricacy of all their movements. He would see at once that the subject lay at a hopeless distance beyond the field of legitimate observation. It would be quite enough for him that it was beyond the range of his telescope. On this ground and on this ground only, he would reject it as one of the puniest imbecilities of childhood. As to any character of truth or of importance, it would have no more effect on such a mind as that of Newton than any illusion of poetry, and from the eminence of his intellectual throne he would cast a penetrating glance at the whole speculation and bid its gaudy insignificance away from him. But let us pass onward to another case, which, though as imaginary as the former, may still serve the purpose of illustration. He may avail himself of some slender correspondencies between the heat of the sun and the moral temperament of the people it shines upon, He may work up a theory which carries on the front of it some of the characters of plausibility, but surely it does not require the philosophy of Newton to demonstrate the folly of such an enterprise. There is not a man of plain understanding who does not perceive that this ambitious inquirer has got without his reach, that he has stepped beyond the field of experience and is now expatiating on the field of imagination." that he has ventured on a dark unknown, where the wisest of all philosophy is the philosophy of silence, and a profession of ignorance is the best evidence of a solid understanding, that if he thinks he knows anything on such a subject as this, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. He knows not what Newton knew, and what he kept a steady eye upon throughout the whole march of his sublime investigations. He knows not the limit of his own faculties. He has overleapt the barrier which hems in all the possibilities of human attainment. He has wantonly flung himself off from the safe and firm field of observation and got on that undiscoverable ground where, by every step he takes, he widens his distance from the true philosophy, and by every affirmation he utters, he rebels against the authority of all its maxims. I can conceive it to be your feeling that I have hitherto indulged in a vain expensive argument, and it is most natural for you to put the question, what is the precise point of convergence to which I am directing, all the light of this abundant and seemingly superfluous illustration? In the astronomical objection which infidelity has proposed against the truth of the Christian revelation, there is first an assertion and then an argument. The assertion is that Christianity is set up for the exclusive benefit of our minute and solitary world. The argument is that God would not lavish such a quantity of attention on so insignificant a field. Even though the assertion were admitted, I should have a quarrel with the argument. But the futility of the objection is not laid open in all its extent unless we expose the utter want of all essential evidence even for the truth of the assertion. How do infidels know that Christianity is set up for the single benefit of this earth and its inhabitants? How are they able to tell us that if you go to other planets, the person and the religion of Jesus are there unknown to them? We challenge them to the proof of this announcement. We see in this objection the same rash and gratuitous procedure which was so apparent in the two cases that we have already advanced for the purpose of illustration. We see in it the same glaring transgression on the spirit and the maxims of that very philosophy which they profess to idolize. They have made their argument against us out of an assertion which has positively no ascertained fact to rest upon, an assertion which they have no means whatever of verifying, an assertion, the truth or the falsehood of which, can only be gathered out of some supernatural message, for it lies completely beyond the range of human observation. It is willingly admitted that, by an attempt at the botany of other worlds, the true method of philosophizing is trampled on, for this is a subject that lies beyond the range of actual observation, and every performance upon it must be made up of assertions without proofs. It is also willingly admitted that an attempt at the civil and political history of their people would be an equally extravagant departure from the spirit of the true philosophy, for this also lies beyond the field of actual observation, and all that could possibly be mustered up on such a subject as this would still be assertions without proofs. Now the theology of these planets is, in every way, as inaccessible a subject as their politics or their natural history, and therefore it is, that the objection grounded on the confident assumption of these infidel astronomers, who assert Christianity to be the religion of this one world, or that the religion of these other worlds is not our very Christianity, can have no influence on a mind that has derived its habits of thinking from the pure and rigorous school of Newton, for the whole of this assertion is just as glaringly destitute of proof as in the two former instances." The man who could embark in an enterprise so foolish and so fanciful as to theorize on the details of the botany of another world, or to theorize on the natural and moral history of its people, is just making as outrageous a departure from all sense and all science and all sobriety when he presumes to speculate or to assert on the details or the methods of God's administration among its rational and accountable inhabitants. He wings his fancy to as hazardous a region, and vainly strives a penetrating vision through the mantle of as deep an obscurity. All the elements of such a speculation are hidden from him. For anything he can tell, sin has found its way into these other worlds. For anything he can tell, their people have banished themselves from communion with God. For anything he can tell, many a visit has been made to each of them on the subject of our common Christianity by commissioned messengers from the throne of the Eternal. For anything he can tell, the redemption proclaimed to us is not one solitary instance, or not the whole of that redemption which is by the Son of God, but only our part in a plan of mercy, equal in magnificence, to all that astronomy has brought within the range of human contemplation. For anything he can tell, the moral pestilence which walks abroad over the face of our world may have spread its desolations over all the planets of all the systems which the telescope has made known to us. For anything he can tell, some mighty redemption has been devised in heaven to meet this disaster in the whole extent and malignity of its visitations. For anything he can tell, the wonder-working God, who has strewed the field of immensity with so many worlds and spread the shelter of his omnipotence over them, may have sent a message of love to each and reassured the hearts of its despairing people by some overpowering manifestation of tenderness. For anything he can tell, angels from paradise may have sped to every planet their delegated way, and sung, from each azure canopy, a joyful annunciation, and said, Peace be to this residence, and goodwill to all its families, and glory to him in the highest, who, from the eminency of his throne, has issued an act of grace so magnificent as to carry the tidings of life and of acceptance to the unnumbered orbs of a sinful creation." For anything he can tell, the eternal Son, of whom it is said that by him the worlds were created, may have had the government of many sinful worlds laid upon his shoulders, and by the power of his mysterious word, have awoke them all from that spiritual death, to which they had sunk in lethargy as profound as the slumbers of non-existence. For anything he can tell, the one Spirit, who moved on the face of the waters, and whose presiding influence it was, that hushed the wild war of nature's elements, and made a beauteous system emerge out of its disjointed materials, may now be working with the fragments of another chaos, and adducing order, and obedience, and harmony, out of the wrecks of a moral rebellion, which reaches through all these spheres, and spreads disorder to the uttermost limits of our astronomy. But here I stop, nor shall I attempt to grope further my dark and fatiguing way among such sublime and mysterious secrecies. It is not I who am offering to lift this curtain. It is not I who am pitching my adventurous flight to the secret things which belong to God, away from the things that are revealed and which belong to us and to our children. It is the champion of that very infidelity which I am now combating. It is he who props his unchristian argument by presumptions fetched out of those untravelled obscurities which lie on the other side of a barrier that I pronounce to be impassable. It is he who transgresses the limits which Newton forbore to enter— because with a justness which reigns throughout all his inquiries, he saw the limit of his own understanding. Nor would he venture himself beyond it. It is he who has borrowed from the philosophy of this wondrous man a few dazzling conceptions which have only served to bewilder him, while an utter stranger to the spirit of this philosophy he has carried a daring and an ignorant speculation far beyond the boundary of its prescribed and allowable enterprises. It is he who has mustered against the truths of the gospel, Resting, as it does, on evidence within the reach of his faculties, an objection, for the truth of which he has no evidence whatever. It is he who puts away from him a doctrine, for which he has the substantial and the familiar proof of human testimony, and substitutes in its place a doctrine for which he can get no other support than from a reverie of his own imagination. It is he who turns aside from all that safe and certain argument that is supplied by the history of this world, of which he knows something, and who loses himself in the work of theorizing about other worlds, of the moral and theological history of which he positively knows nothing. Upon him, and not upon us, lies the folly of launching his impetuous way beyond the province of observation, of letting his fancy afloat among the unknown of distant and mysterious regions, and by an act of daring, as impious as it is unphilosophical, of trying to unwrap that shroud which, till drawn aside by the hand of a messenger from heaven, will ever veil from human eye the purposes of the eternal. If you have gone along with us in the preceding observations, you will perceive how they are calculated to disarm of all its point, and of all its energy, that flippancy of Voltaire, when, in the examples he gives of the dotage of the human understanding, he tells us of Bacon having believed in witchcraft, and Sir Isaac Newton having written a commentary on the book of Revelation. The former instance we shall not undertake to vindicate, But in the latter instance we perceive what this brilliant and specious but with all superficial apostle of infidelity either did not see or refused to acknowledge. We see in this intellectual labor of our great philosopher the working of the very same principles which carried him through the profoundest and the most successful of his investigations, and how he kept most sacredly and most consistently by those very maxims the authority of which he, even in the full vigor and manhood of his faculties, ever recognized we see in the theology of newton the very spirit and principle which gave all its stability and all its sureness to the philosophy of newton we see the same tenacious adherence to every one doctrine that had such valid proof to uphold it as could be gathered from the field of human experience and we see the same firm resistance of every one argument that had nothing to recommend it, but such plausibilities as could easily be devised by the genius of man when he expatiated abroad on those fields of creation which the eye never witnessed, and from which no messengers ever came to us with any credible information. Now it was on the former of these two principles that Newton clung so determinedly to his Bible, as the record of an actual annunciation from God to the inhabitants of this world, When he turned his attention to this book, he came to it with a mind tutored to the philosophy of facts, and when he looked at its credentials, he saw the stamp and the impress of this philosophy on every one of them. He saw the fact of Christ being a messenger from heaven, in the audible language by which it was conveyed from heaven's canopy to human ears. He saw the fact of his being an approved ambassador of God, in those miracles which carried their own resistless evidence along with them to human eyes. He saw the truth of this whole history brought home to his own conviction by a sound and substantial vehicle of human testimony. He saw the reality of that supernatural light, which inspired the prophecies he himself illustrated by such an agreement with the events of a various and distant futurity as could be taken cognizance of by human observation. He saw the wisdom of God pervading the whole substance of the written message in such manifold adaptations to the circumstances of man and to the whole secrecy of his thoughts and his affections and his spiritual wants and his moral sensibilities, as even in the mind of an ordinary and unlettered peasant can be attested by human consciousness. These formed the solid materials of the basis on which our experimental philosopher stood, and there was nothing in the whole compass of his own astronomy to dazzle him away from it, and he was too well aware of the limit between what he knew and what he did not know, to be seduced from the ground he had taken by any of those brilliancies which have since led so many of his humbler successes into the track of infidelity. He had measured the distances of these planets, he had calculated their periods, he had estimated their figures and their bulk and their densities, and he had subordinated the whole intricacy of their movements to the simple and sublime agency of one commanding principle, but he had too much of the ballast of a substantial understanding about him to be thrown afloat by all this success among the plausibilities of wanton and unauthorized speculation. He knew the boundary which hemmed him. He knew that he had not thrown one particle of light on the moral or religious history of these planetary regions. He had not ascertained what visits of communication they received from the God who upholds them. But he knew that the fact of a real visit made to this planet— had such evidence to rest upon that it was not to be disposted by any aerial imagination. And when I look at the steady and unmoved Christianity of this wonderful man, so far from seeing any symptom of dotage and imbecility or any forgetfulness of those principles on which the fabric of his philosophy is reared, I do see that in sitting down to the work of a Bible commentator he hath given us their most beautiful and most consistent exemplification. I did not anticipate such a length of time and of illustration in this stage of my argument, but I will not regret it if I have familiarized the minds of any of my readers to the reigning principle of this discourse. We are strongly disposed to think that it is a principle which might be made to apply to every argument of every unbeliever, and so to serve not merely as an antidote against the infidelity of astronomers, but to serve as an antidote against all infidelity. We are all aware of the diversity of complexion which infidelity puts on. It looks one thing in the man of science, and of liberal accomplishment. It looks another thing in the refined voluptuary. It looks still another thing in the commonplace railer against the artifices of priestly domination. It looks another thing in the dark and unsettled spirit of him, whose every reflection is tinctured with gall, and who casts his envious and malignant scowl at all that stands associated with the established order of society. It looks another thing in the prosperous man of business, who has neither time nor patience for the details of the Christian evidence, but who, amid the hurry of his other occupations, has gathered as many of the lighter petulancies of the infidel writers, and caught from the perusal of them as contemptuous a tone towards the religion of the New Testament, as to set him at large from all the decencies of religious observation, and to give him the disdain of an elevated complacency over all the follies of what he counts a vulgar superstition, And lastly, for infidelity has now got down amongst us to the humblest walks of life, may it occasionally be seen lowering on the forehead of the resolute and hardy artificer, who can lift his menacing voice against the priesthood, and looking on the Bible as a jugglery of theirs can bid stout defiance to all its denunciations. Now, under all these varieties we think that there might be detected the one and universal principle which we have attempted to expose— The something, whatever it is, which has dispossessed all these people of their Christianity, exists in their minds, in the shape of a position which they hold to be true, but which by no legitimate evidence they have ever realized, and a position which lodges within them as a willful fancy or a presumption of their own, but which could not stand the touchstone of that wise and solid principle, in virtue of which the followers of Newton give to observation the precedence over theory. It is a principle altogether worthy of being labored, as if carried round in faithful and consistent application amongst these numerous varieties, it is able to break up all the existing infidelity of the world. But there is one other most important conclusion to which it carries us. It carries us with all the docility of children to the Bible, and puts us down into the attitude of an unreserved surrender of thought and understanding to its authoritative information. Without the testimony of an authentic messenger from heaven, I know nothing of heaven's counsels. I never heard of any moral telescope that can bring to my observation the doings or the deliberations which are taking place in the sanctuary of the eternal. I may put into the registers of my belief all that comes home to me through the senses of the outer man or by the consciousness of the inner man, but neither the one nor the other can tell me of the purposes of God, can tell me of the transactions or the designs of his sublime monarchy, can tell me of the goings forth of him who is from everlasting unto everlasting, can tell me of the march and the movements of that great administration which embraces all worlds, and takes into its wide and comprehensive survey the mighty roll of innumerable ages. It is true that my fancy may break its impetuous way into this lofty and inaccessible field, and through the devices of my heart which are many, the visions of an ever-shifting theology may take their alternate sway over me, but the counsel of the Lord it shall stand." and I repeat it, that if true to the leading principle of that philosophy which has poured such a flood of light over the mysteries of nature, we shall dismiss every self-formed conception of our own, and wait, in all the humility of conscious ignorance, till the Lord himself shall break his silence and make his counsel known, by an act of communication. And now that a professed communication is before me, and that it has all the solidity of the experimental evidence on its side, and nothing but the reveries of a daring speculation to oppose it, what is the consistent, what is the rational, what is the philosophical use that should be made of this document, but to set me down like a schoolboy to the work of turning its pages, and conning its lessons, and submitting the every exercise of my judgment to its information and its testimony. We know that there is a superficial philosophy which casts the glare of a most seducing brilliancy around it, and spurns the Bible with all the doctrine, and all the piety of the Bible, away from it and has infused the spirit of Antichrist into many of the literary establishments of the age. But it is not the solid, the profound, the cautious spirit of that philosophy, which has done so much to ennoble the modern period of our world. For the more that this spirit is cultivated and understood, the more will it be found in alliance with that spirit, in virtue of which all that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God is humbled, and all lofty imaginations are cast down, and every thought of the heart is brought into the captivity of the obedience of Christ." End of discourse two.